0: Welcome to the serialized audiobook Nocturnal by number 1 New York Times best-selling author Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. This novel contains adult situations, violence, and is meant for mature audiences. Nocturnal is available in print, ebook, and unabridged ad-free audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com/nocturnal.
1: Chapter 6. The Rep Scan Machine Pookie, wake up. Robin pushed at Pookie's shoulder. He was on her couch and might as well have been dead for all he moved. She poked him again. Come on, sleepyhead, rise and shine. Five more minutes, Mom, he said. I promise all my chores are done. You told me to wake you when the tests were almost finished. That got his attention. Pookie pushed himself to a sitting position. He rubbed his face. That coffee I smell. Of course, Robin said. Go to the table, I'll get you a cup. For the second night, or morning, depending on how you looked at it, her apartment had become their war room. Brian was already sitting at the dining room table, his hands around a mug, his eyes staring off into space. John's chair was empty. He was at the hospital. Robin had turned her dining room into an impromptu sample prep area. The scan machine sat in the center of the table, processing the two samples Brian and Pookie had brought a few hours earlier. She'd loaded the cartridges and set the karyotype test to running. Any moment now, and it would finish. She walked to the kitchen and came back with a coffee carafe and a mug for Pookie. She filled his mug and refilled Brian's. Both men looked absolutely exhausted. Pookie had given her the sample materials, then headed straight for her couch. Brian hadn't said a word since he'd arrived. He just sat in his chair, first drinking a beer, then a scotch, then moving on to caffeine. Robin thought it best just to leave him be, let him work through whatever it was that was on his mind. If he wanted her help, he could ask her. She was done trying. Sounds like you boys had quite the adventure, Robin said. I'm just glad no one got hurt, other than Erickson, I mean. Pookie nodded and took a sip of coffee. Yes, no one got hurt, permanently anyway. How much longer until that test is done? She looked at the machine's touch screen. About five minutes, maybe less. Are you guys going to tell me who the second sample is from? She knew the first sample was from Erickson but they had avoided her questions about the second. A perp from Erickson's house, Pookie said. We didn't catch him. Once again, there was clearly more to the story than Pookie wanted to let on. Not surprising that he did the talking. He was a far better liar than Brian. Brian's head came up. He blinked rapidly, as if he'd been catnapping and was just becoming aware of his surroundings. The ear, he said. What? Pookie nodded. I forgot about that. Me too, Brian said. He reached into his pocket, pulled out a plastic evidence bag and held it up for Robin to see. Brian, she said. Why do you have a human ear in a baggie? It's from a stuffed person we found in Erickson's basement. Can you run DNA on it? She reached out and took the bag, looked at the contents. The skin looked dry and brittle, almost like leather. When you say stuffed, you mean like a big game animal? Stuffed for display? Yeah. Can you test it for the Z chromosome? Not here, she said. The tanning process destroys most of the cellular DNA. I'd need a biology lab. Something with the equipment needed to try and extract any remaining DNA and a PCR machine to amplify it. A university lab would work. Maybe SFSU, or I could try the hospitals. But that's going to take a few days, and I wouldn't hold your breath, that it'll work. Brian just looked at her. His eyes burned with both anger and anguish. He was a cauldron of emotions, so much so that Robin couldn't really remember the old Brian, the one with the cold, unfeeling stare. The machine beeped. Robin looked at the little screen. Erickson sample complete. She pressed the icon and read the results. ZX, she said. Wow, Erickson is a Z. Pookie and Brian didn't look surprised in the least. Related, Brian said. Is Erickson related to the others? Robin tapped the touchscreen, scrolling through to the familial indicators. There it was, a match. Bingo, she said. Jebediah Erickson, Rex Depravdichuk, Blackbeard, and Oscar Woody's killer all have the same mother. Brian seemed to shrink into himself. He leaned back in his chair. His chin dropped to his chest. Pookie shook his head. Wait a minute. We think Marie's children are these Zeds. If so, Erickson isn't just killing his own kind. He's killing his direct family? What is that all about? Robin shrugged. If Erickson is in custody, can't you ask him? Might not be talkative, Pookie said. You know, considering he's in the ICU after taking a knife to the belly. Brian looked up. He's a Zed. He'll heal fast. We can go to the hospital and question Erickson directly. We just have to get around Zao." Pookie thought this over, then sipped at his mug. Robin, you're a doctor. Can you find out Erickson's condition without anyone knowing that we're asking? She hadn't been part of the hospital system for years, but many of her friends still worked there. I probably can't get detailed patient info, but I can find someone to tell me if he's out of ICU. The RAP scan beeped. Sample 2 complete. Here we go, she said. She clicked the icon and the results flashed up. She saw the marker for an X, then a Z, and also a Y. This one is trisomal. It's XYZ, just like Rex. In fact... She thumbed through the screens, looking for the familial indicator. Yes, once again the same mother. All these guys are one big happy family. Pookie's eyes widened. Brian's eyes burned with intensity. Maybe even rage. The same mother. You're absolutely sure. Robin nodded. He stood and held out his right hand to Pookie, palm up. Keys, he said. Pookie looked worried. Going somewhere, Bri-Bri? Keys. Maybe I should drive you, Pookie said. We could give me the fucking keys. Pookie leaned away. Robin held her breath. She'd never heard Brian raise his voice before. Not ever. Not even during their worst fights. Pookie dug his hand into his pocket and handed Brian his car keys. Brian took them and walked out of the dining room. Emma followed, tail wagging. The apartment door opened and shut. Emma came wandering slowly back into the dining room, looking for someone else to pay attention to her. Why had Brian stormed out like that? Pookie, what the hell just happened? Pookie leaned forward rested his head in his hands. I think Brian needs to go see his dad. Fuck this, I'm going back to sleep. He stood up and pulled out his phone. He walked into the living room, his fingers texting out a message as he went. Without breaking stride, he finished the text, put the phone back in his pocket, then collapsed onto the couch, his back facing out into the living room. Emma shot in like a black-and-white streak, jumped up after him, and settled into the crook of his legs. Robin stared at Pookie. He was wiped out. Something big was happening between him and Brian, and she didn't know what it was. Why wouldn't they trust her? She wasn't tired, not at all. She found her phone and started scrolling through her contacts, looking for people that still worked at SFGH. Chapter 7. Aggie Gets a Roommate Aggie James didn't want to wake up, but a part of his mind pulled at him, tried to drag him out of a dream where a little girl's lips pecked feather light on his cheek and her arms wrapped around his neck. He didn't want to wake, but wake he did. He sniffed. He rubbed at his face. The real bitch about getting sober? You start to remember things. Aggie James hadn't always been a strung-out homeless bum. Once upon a time, in fact, he'd owned a little counterculture internet cafe. He'd attracted a certain anti-establishment clientele. All kinds of people wandered in, but after seeing the giant Fuck Starbucks mural painted on the wall behind the coffee counter, the visitors either smiled and stayed or frowned and left. He'd run the place with his wife and teenage daughter, right up until the robbery. The robbers shot Aggie first. Shot him twice, in fact once in the leg and once in the chest. He remembered dropping to his ass, back propped up by the counter. His blood ran everywhere. He couldn't move, couldn't lift a finger, but he stayed conscious long enough to see them put a bullet in his wife's head. He stayed conscious long enough to see his daughter run for the door, to see her shot in the back before she could reach it. He stayed conscious long enough to see her crawling across the floor, bloody hands reaching for him, begging for her daddy to help her, to please help her, please. Aggie James even stayed conscious long enough to see the gun pointed at his daughter's face and just long enough to hear her last scream stop abruptly when the gunman pulled the trigger. Only then had he passed out. The cops told him the robbers probably thought he was dead and that passing out had probably saved his life. His life. What a joke. Fucking memories. He couldn't shake them. Not until he'd done heroin for about a month straight. That made you forget everything. Almost. He'd lost all that mattered to him. Nothing would fill that inescapable dullness in his heart. Not that he'd tried very hard to fill it, of course. With no reason to go on, and not enough guts to kill himself, he'd chosen a slow route to the grave. A painful route. It's what he had coming after all. If a man can't protect his family, does he deserve to live? Aggie had thought not. That was before the White Dungeon. This horrific place reminded Aggie that life, no matter how crappy it might be, was far better than the alternative. A day and a half ago, as near as he could tell, Hillary had given him hope. If there was even a chance to get out of this, To live. Aggie would do anything she asked. He finally blinked away the sleep to see that a new man had been chained to the wall on his left, where the Mexican woman had once been. Not a man. A boy, really. But a goddamn big boy. The kid's face looked like swollen hamburger split lip, broken teeth, blood all over his mouth, and a seriously fucked up nose. He was spitting up blood and making low moaning noises. Noises that had the cadence of speech, but were not words. The boy opened his mouth to moan louder, and Aggie saw why the sounds had no meaning. Someone had cut out his tongue. To his right, Aggie heard other noises he didn't understand, but that was only because he didn't speak Chinese. The Chinaman was on his knees, tear-streaked eyes shut tight, body rocking back and forth as he prayed to someone or something. Aggie James couldn't help the Chinaman, and he couldn't help the tongueless boy. He could only help himself, and only if Hillary gave him a chance. He lay back down and closed his eyes. Maybe he would dream of his daughter again. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine Fathers and Sons Brian pulled up to Mike Clouser's house to find his dad sitting on the front steps, Bud Light in hand. Five more bottles sat in a Sixer at his feet. He was shirtless, wearing beat-up jeans and black socks with no shoes. He was waiting. That meant Pookie had called ahead. Fucking Pookie. Brian shut off the Buick's engine. His hands squeezed the steering wheel. If Erickson was 60 years old or more, and he was Brian's half-brother, then Brian's real mother would have to be 75 or probably even older. Mike Klauser and Starla Hutchton had gone to high school together. Brian had seen their yearbooks, their class pictures, other pictures of them from their childhoods and their grade school days. They had been born the same year. Mike had turned 58 a few months back. Mike, who the genetic test said was not Brian's father, and Starla, who was younger than Jebediah Erickson, which meant that the woman Brian had always known as his mother was anything but. All his life, Brian had been lied to. He felt that rage swelling up, the same rage he'd felt when Zao had threatened him with jail. He stepped out of the Buick. Mike stood and reached for the front door, to open it as if to invite Brian in. Don't bother, Brian said. His father stopped and turned. Pookie texted that you had something important to talk about. Come in, we'll talk. I don't want to go inside, Brian said. What I want to know is who my real parents are. Mike Clouser stared for a moment. He slowly lowered himself to the front step and sat. He stared at the ground. You're my son. Bullshit! Mike looked up his expression caught between the anger that solved most of his problems and a gut-wrenching pain from hurting his boy. I don't care about biology. I wiped your ass and changed your diapers. I cleaned up your puke. When you got a fever, I felt like someone was chopping up my heart with a goddamn cleaver. You'd just cough and the sound scared me worse than any fight I've ever been in. To think Brian had loved this man, this liar, Are you finished? I took you to school, Mike said. I hauled you to soccer practice. I watched every wrestling match you ever had, and when someone put you on your back, I had to grab the damn bleachers because it was all I could do not to come out on the mat and kick the other kid in the head. I'm the one who taught you right from wrong. Quite a show of concern. But then again, Mike had a lifetime of practice. Brian's lifetime. And in all those years... It never crossed your mind to tell me the goddamn truth. The truth is that you are my boy. Mike's lower lip quivered just for a moment. Then he seemed to force his emotions under control. You will always be my son. Brian shook his head slowly. I'm not. I'm just a kid that you lied to. Mike pulled an unopened bottle out of the Bud Light Sixer. He held it between his palms, slowly rolling it back and forth. I don't know how you found out, but you can forget the guilt trips because I wouldn't change a thing. What had Brian been hoping for? Maybe a little remorse? Maybe a, gosh, I'm so sorry? Mike wasn't apologizing. At least his character was consistent in that regard. Who are my parents? You owe me that, so start talking. Mike set the bottle on the step next to his feet. He looked weak. The expression on his face, the sagging posture. Brian had seen those things only once before, when his mother had died. There was a homeless guy in our neighborhood, Mike said. Eric. Never knew his last name. He was a combat vet, Marines. The neighborhood kind of watched out for him. We'd give him food, clothes. One day, Eric just wasn't there. When he showed up a week later, he had a baby with him. Brian's hands flexed into fists, relaxed, flexed into fists. Are you telling me that Eric, the homeless vet, is my father? Mike shook his head. He wasn't your father. Your mother didn't think so anyway. That bitch wasn't my mother. Mike grabbed and threw the beer bottle in one snap motion, a line drive of tumbling brown glass. Brian stepped aside. The bottle smashed against Pookie's driver's side window in an explosion of glass and beer. Mike Clouser stood up. He didn't look sad anymore. Boy, he said in a low voice, you're my son, but she was my wife. You blaspheme her name again and I'm going to string your ass out all over this street. Brian felt his father's neck in his hands before he even realized he'd rushed in. Mike's eyes went wide with shock. Brian pulled him close and screamed in his face. You threaten me again and I'll kill you! He felt Mike's pulse hammering against his fingers. Just a squeeze. What the hell was he doing? Brian released his grip then took four slow steps back. Mike rubbed his throat with his free hand. He looked at Brian more with confusion than fear. You've always been so calm, Mike said. You've never, never yelled at me before. Hadn't yelled, and certainly had never put his hands on his father in anger. The intensity, these highs and lows, all of it was new. He'd had emotions before, of course he had, but nothing this pure, this overwhelming. What was happening to him? Just finished your story, old man. Mike stopped rubbing his throat. He sat down heavily, opened another bottle, and took a long drink. We didn't know what to do, he said. I mean, what could we do? Eric brought the baby to us. He said he had to give the baby to us because he knew we'd make good parents. We watched out for Eric because he was crazy and homeless. A baby in his hands? That was dangerous. So we took you from him, just to make sure Eric didn't do something bad. And you didn't call the cops? You had an infant, probably kidnapped, and you didn't try to find the parents? Mike sniffed, slid a hand across his nose. He sniffed again. We thought we'd try and figure out where you came from, talk to Eric and get some information before we had to call the cops. For God's sake, Brian. Eric went crazy killing for our country, watching his buddies die all around him. We had to at least try and help him out of a jam. Brian breathed slowly. He fought to control the heartbreak and rage swirling inside. This was the man he'd looked up to his entire life. A man who would take another's child. I belonged to someone else, Brian said. Are you actually going to look me in the eye and say you did it to save some insane homeless guy from a well-deserved felony rap? What, were you hoping he'd bring another so you'd have a matched set? It wasn't like that, Mike said quickly. Eric was terrified, Brian. I've never seen anyone that scared. He said he had to find the baby a safe, loving home or he'd get into a lot of trouble. He knew your mother couldn't have kids, so he brought you to us. This just kept getting better. Eric, the homeless guy, knew you guys couldn't have children? Everyone in the neighborhood knew. That's what God had chosen for us. We didn't broadcast it but when people asked if we were going to have kids, we told them we couldn't. We thought of adopting, sure, but hadn't really focused on it. When Eric brought you to us, we couldn't help but think that maybe, maybe it was a miracle. Brian's throat pinched. Sadness roared up to swirl side by side with the anger. How could they have done this to him? A miracle. Are you shitting me? Mike tilted his head a little, an expression that said, Come on, think about it, and you'll see. Two people are totally in love but can't have kids. Then a baby shows up on their doorstep. What more proof of a miracle do you need? Brian's words came out as a cracked yell. How about making Mom able to have kids in the first place? Isn't that a more logical miracle than sending a homeless man with a kidnapped baby? I don't question the Lord's ways. That doesn't make you pious. That makes you stupid. What happened then? You just walked out and told everyone you'd suddenly had an immaculate conception and delivery? Mike again looked to the ground. We kept it very quiet. The night Eric dropped you off, I tried to talk to him, but he just kept babbling about what they would do to him if he failed. And who were they? He wouldn't say. The next night, I tracked him down. Mike paused. He took a sip of his beer. Eric was dead, Brian. I think he OD'd on something. We didn't know what to do about you. Your mother and I read the papers, watched the news, waited for any story about a kidnapped baby. There was nothing. This was the man who raised him. A liar. A coward who only thought of himself. And still, you didn't go to the cops. The kidnapper was dead. Someone had lost their goddamn child. And you didn't do anything? Mike looked away. After the second day, your mother and I were already so in love with you, we would have risked everything to keep you. If we'd known who the parents were, that would have been different. But there was no news at all. We told everyone we knew that your mother was already four months pregnant. I sent her away to a cabin in Yosemite. We told everyone she was staying at your grandmother's until the baby came. Brian wanted to remind Mike that the women he was talking about were neither his mother nor his grandmother, but he kept quiet. Mike drained the beer in one long pull, then set it down with a glass-on-brick clink. Your mother came home with a baby. Simple as that. The neighbors bought it hook, line, and sinker. Everyone commented on how big you were for a newborn. We just laughed and said you were going to play for the Niners someday and make us rich. Mike opened another beer. He tossed the cap away. Because of this man, Brian would probably never know who his real parents were. For the first time in his life, Brian felt tears welling up in his eyes. He blinked rapidly, tried to hold them back. What about my birth certificate? Flash enough money around Chinatown, you'll find a doctor who'll play ball. Your birth certificate just says you were born in this house, not a hospital. You kept a kidnapped infant and you bribed a doctor. What upstanding citizens. What happened next? Mike shrugged again. That's it. We loved you. You were the center of our lives. God delivered you to us, and we spent every day trying to show God that we were worthy. Brian couldn't stop the tears anymore. Thou shalt not lie. You ever hear of that one? The pain returned to Mike's eyes. His body sagged. He had never looked so old. We knew it was wrong, he said. After a little while, we were able to just block it out. We didn't think about it. You were our son. Mike Clouser had been a rock, unflappable, reliable, always looking for the positive in all things. Now he seemed defeated, deflated perhaps, as if someone had stabbed him in the back and let his soul drain away. Brian felt torn in two directions. Part of him hated this man with every fiber of his being, while the other half saw Mike's pain, remembered all the love given during a wonderful childhood. He wanted to hit him. He also wanted to hug him. But he would never do that. Never again. You're not my father, Brian said. You never were. Don't visit. Don't call. You're dead to me. Mike's head dropped. His big body shook a little bit as he started to cry. Brian wiped his own tears as he turned away. The Buick smelled like beer. He got in and drove away. Fuck Mike Clouser. The man could burn in hell for all Brian cared. Mike didn't have the answers Brian needed. There was one place left that Brian might be able to get those answers. But not right now. Not today. He'd had enough. He just had enough.
0: You have been listening to Nocturnal by Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. The Nocturnal audiobook was directed and engineered by Corey Young.